Hello from Spearfish, South Dakota. It's the Black Hills Information Security Podcast. This is the podcast version of our webcast, so some of the slides we might reference will be missing, but you can find the whole episode on our YouTube page. This is Attack Tactics 6, Return of the Blue Team, with John Strand, Jordan Drysdale, and Kent Ickler. Enjoy. So welcome to Attack Tactics Part 6, The Return of the Blue Team. This is a continuation of Attack Tactics 5, which is where we went through an entire attack from external all the way to domain administrator in under an hour. In fact, it was so good we had to do it twice because the first one was really just kind of crazy. And then Kent put a tremendous amount of work into the slides and set it up so it was a lot cleaner to know where we were. And I said that that was going to be the template moving forward, and now he hates me. But as with all of our attack tactics videos, we want to go through and not just talk about how to hack stuff, but what are the different defensive components that you can actually have in place to defend against that particular attack. This webcast is brought to you by our Black Hat class, A Guide to Active Defense, Cyber Deception, and Hacking Back, August 3rd through the 6th at Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas. And I think it's over 60% full. So it's filling up fairly quickly and that'll be a great time. It's all about cyber deception. And there's actually some cyber deception built into this webcast as well. It is also brought to you by AI Hunter, our network threat hunting solution, brought to you by Active Countermeasures. If at any point you're thinking, you know, I'd like to have a demo and see what this AI Hunter or Rita network threat hunting thing is all about, just type in demo into questions and we'll be happy to set up a demo. It is also brought to you by Wild West Hacking Fest. This is our con uh, at the end of October. Last year was completely insane. It was an amazing time. We have, I, I, I seriously believe that we are the most hands-on security conference in the world. Absolutely. Um, the amount of hands-on, like you can see where I'm screaming with Bo and right below you can see our capture the flag environment where a whole bunch of people are doing the CTF, which is brought to you this year by Meta CTF again. We have a door picking village. We have a software defined radio picking village. We are picking a hacking village. We have an embedded device hacking village. It is amazing what's actually there. In fact, it's impossible for you to see and do everything. Yeah, that, that door hacking is the coolest thing I've ever been a part of. That's I have never so seen cool. anything like that's it. That's so cool. In fact, it's so Deviant unique. and I were talking about doing some classes out here just so we could use that system. Which would be terrifying because that means we have to pull it out of storage and get it working. And thanks to some of Marcello's advice, we're going to re-rev the wireless slide, the yep. wireless labs on BetterCap this year. Yep. So oh, we'll be BetterCap. BetterCap, BetterCap has, has increased its game. It's yep. amazing. Oh, no we should do one of these webcasts on your new wireless attack toolkit because <laughs> that's something that changes every two years. So here we go. Yeah, angry at my we're, we're going to get started. Uh, so for all of these slides, everything references back to the specific timestamp of the previous video. So if I go to our webcast and I select the time frame 1135, it's going to take you right to the section where we started doing password spraying attacks against our environment. And in this particular part of the webcast, let me make it large. So with this particular part of the webcast uh, that we did a couple of weeks ago, we were using the password spray uh, toolkit to spray against an OA portal. And this is an attack that we use very, very regularly in almost every single penetration test that we do these days. If it has any type of authentication, external uh, authentication at all, we absolutely go for password spray, even if two-factor authentication is enabled. Now, guys, why is it that we still password spray? Doesn't two-factor authentication completely defeat the purpose of this uh, type of attack? 
Yeah, not necessarily, and that depends on timing. So generally, when we have identified a two-factor installation, we still password spray, but I password spray differently. Right? Yeah. I want to see the actual responses, timing, and size using a tool like Burp or And some also other. with OWA, there's still bypass for well, OWA. You, there are bypasses a lot of times for Exchange Web Services, which MailSniper absolutely takes advantage of. But even if they have full two-factor enabled on their OA portal, if we're able to identify credentials, like you can see on this screen, the Maxine James Dakota 2019, we can still use those credentials possibly someplace else. Absolutely. And that's going to be one of the themes that we're going to be talking about. One other point about that is this is running on Bash on Windows. So we were able to get the spraying toolkit installed on a Windows subsystem for Linux. We have Windows subsystem for Linux. And by the and way, that is shipping now. Yep. Windows subsystem for Linux is going to be built in by default version two, and it's going to have full networking capabilities. Nice. Uh, so all of our network tools will work right out of the box. Very so whenever you're looking at these tools, if you think, well, these tools are uh, like for Linux only, that is no longer the case, uh, especially with newer. I'm curious, uh, Mascan, low level, is it going to work at that low level or not? Yes, it will be able to work at that low awesome. level. Well, the way I've heard about it, the Windows Subsystem Linux 2 will actually set up the Linux virtual machine as a virtual machine. So it'll have its own kernel running alongside the Windows kernel, and that's what's going to be happening. So let's go to the defenses really quick. So user behavioral and entity analytics. I, I can't stress this enough. I run into too many organizations that believe there's far too many quote unquote false positives associated with UBEA. And there are false positives with it. There are absolutely false positives with it. But any security solution that you're going to purchase is going to have a refinement and tuning period associated with it. And UBEA is one of the few tools that I consistently read in the reports from our penetration testers that is actually detecting what we're doing post-exploitation for the customers that have that. Now, there are bypass techniques. There's a number of different articles on getting around advanced threat analytics and Exabeam. But what we're finding with a lot of these vendors is when there is a vulnerability that's discovered or a bypass technique, they're fixing it very, very quickly. It does increase the amount of noise without question but it's better noise than what you're getting with the standard SIM. Also, the question comes up every single time that we do a webcast and we talk about password spraying. People say, what about account lockout? So let's go back to this video. If you look at the video, this is on the YouTube channel, the Black Hills InfoSec YouTube channel. If you look at the authentications, you will see it's one authentication per user account. So Johnny Doyle and Michael Mathis, Susie Vargas, Gail Mullins, and they're all running the exact same password. What this means in terms of the account lockout is it means we're most likely not going to lock out any accounts because we're not logging in multiple times per account. We're logging in or attempting a login one time per account. So that's really, really important. And all of these accounts we pick up via standard recon techniques. And we are now, gentlemen, I think we're now at the point we need to redo a recon webcast. Uh, the webcam webcast uh, that Bo and Mike did was a really fast, high level approach of recon. I think that could easily be broken up into a series because oh, there's so much yeah. that's going on with it. Any especially one of those tools. We, we talked about that too in the last webcast. That yeah. There's so much content just within recon that it, it is its own. Yeah, and think about that. Every, every time we're hired to do an external, each VHIS tester is going to spend a day. And sometimes our sometimes interns, more. I don't even know if I'm allowed to say that our interns like are sometimes asked and tasked with running recon, finding BGP yeah, networks. As long as they are and, not touching the yeah, customer exactly. network. Uh, exactly. That is usually where we draw the line as far as what 
interns can actually do at BHIS. We a don't day of recon, around. right? That's eight mm -hmm. hours, just effort. Yeah, which, which means how many webcasts could you pull out of that? Plenty, plenty, absolutely. Also, one of the things that I like to get across is I love cyber deception. And we were talking about how we're now starting to see that more and more on tests. Uh, you saw some honeypots last week. We've seen BB King run into some honeypots. But I'm a huge fan of setting up possibly honey accounts. What you can do is set up some accounts on places like LinkedIn and other like social media places that would be associated with your organization. And if it's scraped by automated recon tools, then it, whenever they try to spray, you'll be able to identify that somebody is actively trying to go after one of your honey accounts. And whenever you're talking about honey pots and cyber deception, I'll discuss this a little bit later, you really need to make sure that you're putting your cyber deception in a, in a path where the attacker is going to run into it. That requires a very solid understanding of the attack methodologies like this webcast and finding where an attacker would go. Also limit what people can put on their LinkedIn and other social media profiles. They shouldn't be saying, you know, this is the technology I work with. These are the things that I do at my company. This is my role, my position. I'm an expert in this language. You, you have to be careful with that. The other thing that I love with this is canary tokens. Canary tokens are so cool. I had canary tokens up here. Let me pull it over. So this is canary tokens by Thinkist. And I've talked about this in a number of different uh, webcasts so far. So what Canary Tokens does and how it relates to password spraying is you could do something like a cloned website. And what this is going to do is anytime anyone tries to clone your website, you can put Whoa. this code into any part of your website. And if they clone the website for a spear phishing attack or anything like that, it'll actually trigger back and load this image and then it'll trigger an alert and notify you that someone is actively trying to come after uh, your website. This isn't quite in the password spraying realm yet, but we'll, we'll circle back to this a little bit later whenever we discuss the uh, spear phishing attacks. Is that a paid service? No, that's completely free. Yeah, and all of that is completely, is completely all stuff we talk about in cyber deception class. And we actually stand up that whole environment in class uh, for the students. So that's fun. So back to two-factor, a theme in this particular webcast that is going to be critical is two-factor, well, let's back up. PCI, I've been fighting with PCI quite a bit lately. Why is that, John? Because their minimum password requirement is seven characters. And I have seven. And that's that's one last yeah. than... Binary? That, yeah, that's one less than the Green Book in 1985. That is less than what Teen Vogue recommends. And it's an absolute nightmare. And I, I would like to get some help from everybody. Milliseconds, John, on our password cracker. Milliseconds. Milliseconds. Not nanoseconds. Folding space time. There, it's it is less than a second for us to go through all seven character seven combos. Characters. So which is upper, lower, special number. Correct. Well, it's a little bit long if you do all, all of those, but it's less than 10 seconds if you do all of those. Yeah. So it's terrifying. Where is the PCI? Math is easy. So PCI has a Twitter account. PCI CSS. Is it PCI CSS? I need to find it. I tweet it all the time. Yeah, so just give me a second. You think I'd have this? You think I would have this all set up and ready to go? Here it is. PCI SSC. All right. So if we've had some times, some some times where we've done things on these webcasts that I've been very proud of. When we brought down MITRE's entire website, when we first started talking about the attack technique matrix, I was really 
that was great, right? I mean, that was a great way to let people know that PCI is absolutely awesome. When we brought down James and Kelly Tarala's website, we brought down audit scripts because we gave them the BHIS hug of death. What I would like is a tweet storm at oh. PCI right now. If you could help me out, I'm going to do, uh, what's that guy on HBO? John, um, John Oliver. John Oliver. We're going to do a John Oliver. If all the people <laughs> that are on this webcast or if you're watching this video, could you please tweet the PCI SSC Twitter account and ask the Security Standards Council to please raise the password complexity requirements from seven characters. What's the hashtag? Um, I don't know. Let's make. You want to make up one? Not hashtag. Let's blast. call it uh, pound fix the future. So, oh, that's fantastic. So, so it'll be like pound fix the future. And if we could all just mention and call out PCI SSC, let's see if we can get their attention. And I think we have a few hundred people on this webcast. That should generate enough traffic. It should. Right and what, what bothers me about the password policy is that generally the PCI standards-based approach to securing your network is solid and strong and they want but that, updates and they want patching and scanning yes, and, and all validation. They're good. Seven characters. So Not let's good. talk about why audit frameworks actually go with seven characters. The reason why audit frameworks go with seven characters is because of two-factor authentication. The thought process is if we have two-factor authentication using an RSA token or Google Authenticator, then we don't need long passwords. We don't need strong passwords and that's garbage. And the reason why it's garbage is because it only works if you have two-factor authentication enabled absolutely everywhere across an entire environment. It, it, if you have it turned on in one place, it is very likely, and we find it all the time, that there'll be another portal that does not have two-factor authentication actually enabled. So let's reach out and let's, let's touch PCI SSC and let's request very nicely that they raise, that we as a security industry demand that they raise their password complexity standards from seven characters. And let's see if we can change something. Um, the next one I want to talk about, if we go to the video, um, let me go back here. So this is all on YouTube. I absolutely love uh, what, what Jason has done with these. Um, all of these are set up with timestamps where you can jump right into that specific part of the last webcast. And even in this webcast, we'll have it set up. So if I jump to 1524, we actually have a portion of the video where we're running Mail Sniper. We're dumping the actual OA, um, the, the entire GAL, the global address list. Is that correct on this? Am I in the wrong place? Yeah, we're at that point. So Mail Sniper has the ability to actually dump the entire global address list. And the reason why this is so dangerous whenever you're dumping the global address list is it allows an attacker to move from just having 200 accounts that their password spray and allows that to blossom exponentially. So if we're doing standard recon on the outside of an environment, many times we will only find a couple hundred accounts, people that actually have profiles and LinkedIn. Once we get into one of those accounts and we can actually attack and pull down the global address list, then it gives us the ability to expand the number of systems that we are users that we can fish and the number of accounts that we can use in password spraying style attacks. Yep. So here is um, going through, now this is password spraying, the OA portal. Yep, we're almost there. It's right here is the gal. Um, so we have the abilities, the global address list was actually dumped uh, from this particular environment. So how do we actually detect and react to that? Well, this is actually a big topic of conversation, at least it has been at BHIS for quite some time. A lot of user behavioral analytics that 
organizations have been using for different third-party tools, you could get around a lot of those for a long time just by using MailSniper. So many of those tools are checking the file access and system access. They aren't really looking at the exchange logs in as much detail as they should. And I think last week, or was it earlier this week, that we actually saw our first Windows Defender Advanced Threat Protection hit where somebody on our team was running MailSniper. Oh, yes. That was last week, but yep. yes. So tools like Advanced Threat Analytics and Advanced Threat Protection are really starting to up their game. Microsoft, just so you know, if you're looking at Defender and your opinion on Defender is based upon the way it was like four or five years ago, you need to reevaluate it. Defender is quickly becoming the gold standard for signature-based detection and advanced threat protection is getting very solid for EDR and advanced heuristic analysis. But think about the agreements you sign when you accept a Windows ULA these days. Oh, yeah. So Windows 10 and their back-end AI farms are collecting so much information about so many different types of attacks that they have a very good mm -hmm. visual of what is normal and what is evil on uh, networks. So this becomes a problem that's a whole nother webcast for companies like Silence and Endgame and CrowdStrike. If you're building artificial intelligence, it it's only as good as the data that's feeding that artificial intelligence. And Microsoft and Google are gonna be swamping the marketplace here with just the amount of data that they're able to capture. But we finally started getting alerts on people running MailSniper. Now, the other thing that you should do, and I wanted to get you your opinion on this, Attackers may get the global address list, but one of the things that we didn't have time to get into in the webcast was basically looking for over-provisioned inboxes with MailSniper. Yeah, we did not. We did not do that. And I think the best thing you can do to prepare yourself is actually run MailSniper to search for over-provisioned inboxes as far as permissions. Do some recon on your Exchange environment using MailSniper far beyond just the simple password spraying and uh, bypassing two-factor by going to Exchange Web Services, uh, but looking at it as a toolkit for assessment of your Exchange infrastructure. So Bo, Bo has just done an amazing job on this. I want to pause for a couple seconds. Uh, CJ, do we have any questions so far? There is no doubt about that. We're going to have lots of questions, I'm sure. Or is the rest yeah. of the team yeah, answering we're, them? We're keeping up. Yeah. You guys are? We're, we're trying, trying to. Yeah. Dale Hobbs said that uh, rumor has it PCI is going to up that. So yeah, it, it yeah. doesn't hurt for us to push them over the edge. Uh, you know that they're having arguments and there's going to be conversations and they're going to be like, well, what about mainframes? And that gets into- Make an exception for crying out loud. Make Just an make an exception. Yeah, don't make your policies based on the exception. Your, your exception should not be your rules. And there is another really interesting point Dale made in here, and that was about Stanford University's password policy. Oh, really? What's that? I, I'm and, not aware of that. Their password policy is documented very well on their website. I can't remember who they pay money to to implement this, but your password will last as long as your password is, right? So if your password is seven characters, you get it for two weeks. If your password is Whoa. 20 characters, you can have it for three months. If your how password do, is exceptionally complex, right? You can have it for a year. How are they? How are, yeah, oh, what are the filters on Although that? Somebody find that link. It is standard university's password yeah. policy. Seven characters should be milliseconds, though, just to clarify. Absolutely right. Okay. But they have layered protections, and they allow it, right? You want to have a bad password, you can have it for a week, yeah. uh, two weeks. Yeah, I like so. that. I'm down for that. Although I'm sure there's doctors if, at the university. If you have layered controls that allow yep. 
protections in other ways. Well, and that's kind of setting up the level of onerous on the employee or the people that are working there based on their security practices. And that's kind of neat. So they can get that immediate visual feedback about how good or bad their overall security policies Thank you, and Megan. postures are. Megan so and Dale both came up with it on the same time Now, stamp. can they share some tools, third-party tools or open source plugins that you can implement that? Because that sounds like that's a really cool idea. How do we actually implement that? I think would be a question if anyone has a link. Um, that would be great. So moving on, let's talk about lateral movement, OA, your VPN access, and SSH. So this once again ties into that problem with two-factor, where organizations use two-factor and then they start reducing the overall security of their organization in other places. So if you have two-factor, let's drop our password complexity to eight or seven characters. But what we find more often than not is we have additional services that can be exploited and taken advantage of. So if we go back to the video and we go to that specific section, um, you can see that through the account that we gained access to, um, we then log directly into Outlook and then able to access the email. And then we're also able to log directly into OpenVPN. Now, this is an example of something that generally should not be directly accessible to the internet, even though I know that it does happen. But if you have a number of different services, the best approach would be, why not put those services behind a VPN? Like if you have to use an OA portal, have that protected behind a VPN with two-factor authentication. So you create that 2FA choke point, and then you scan the rest of your environment trying to identify the rest of the authentication portals that exist within your organization. So it's not, once again, it's not enough just to say we have two-factor. It becomes incredibly important for us to say we have two-factor in addition with you know a VPN that creates that choke point or we're using long and strong passwords. 99% is not enough because an automated scanner, something like Nmap or MassScan is going to find those portals that do not have two-factor. Also, when you're looking at some like cyber deception and what you can do, and this is something that we have in our class. Let me bring this up. This is pretty cool. So this is explanation of client-side scripting with some simple examples for OpenVPN. Almost any VPN that you utilize has the ability to has the ability to run some client scripts once the client has actually authenticated. It has that ability actually baked into it. So this is a good open source, or like I guess OpenVPN is quasi open source because they have a commercial product. Yes. But with client side scripting, as soon as a client tries to authenticate, you can run a number of different scripts where you can say if it's a Windows system, execute this PowerShell script. If you're running on a Linux system, then I want you to run this script with Python. If you're running on a Windows system, you can also run raw C commands or push executables onto those systems as well. I read this one and I about died because I read it as program files foocorp meterpreter.exe, <laughs> but it wasn't. So what you're, exactly. what you're suggesting, John, um, is that someone should go create an OpenVPN instance out on the internet somewhere, and as one of the client-side scripts, should uh, accidentally launch a COBOL strike session, and then see how many exactly. random uh, oh, pop in of people that are wow. trying to password spray said VPN. This is uh, you, you reverse need be, attribution. You need to be careful with that. I'm not suggesting anyone do that. I would. <laughs> <laughs> but look, look, the, the point of this is, if you're going to do something like this, 
We do have people that freak out and they're like, is this hacking back? Well, it, it kind of depends, right? If you're running this and you're just trying to get location information, IP address information, MAC address, if we go back to um, Absolute Software's Susan Clements, Jeffrey, where the judge ruled IP address and location information in an effort to track it down, we're probably okay. Running full cobalt stripe beacons might be crossing that line. <laughs> but if you put it in a warning banner and you're very clear, you're accessing a security lab, we're doing testing, anybody that accesses this lab, a cobalt strike beacon will be launched and you bake it right into the warning banner, who knows wow. what, the, what, the, what the courts would actually rule on something like that. I don't want to be a test case. So, but so. the scenario that instead you run something that's going to pull your geo coordinates. Yeah, like here would be a good example of that very thing. So you can have your script pull an installation file and run it from a network share. So you can put in this situation, you can put an external IP address, pull down an executable, and we can then tie that into Canary tokens. And then in Canary tokens, if we go to Canary tokens, you can actually generate a standalone executable that'll do that type of reverse attribution. So here, and John, how much does this cost? This one's free. It doesn't cost anything. Thank you. So you can then start tying your VPN instances with executables that do that geolocation information. And then uh, you can start tracking very, very bad cool. people doing bad things. So this really is getting in some more advanced offensive approaches. But if we stay with on that bright, happy, shiny line from a legal perspective, I don't think we're going to get sued. Um, of course, you may want to have your lawyers <laughs> look at it. Yeah, that question. Perfect timing. Yeah. Yeah, you might want to have your lawyers look at it, but I want you to think through the scenario. Let's say that you created an executable in an open VPN script and you had a warning banner that said, we're going to find your location, we're going to check your MAC address, we're going to validate logged on users to validate the security of all systems accessing our environment. That all sounds reasonable. And, and is that ever, any different than a VPN host checker? Nope, it is absolutely not. As long as we don't cross the line and start dropping cobalt strike beacons on systems or interpreter sessions, we're still within our bounds of validating the security of our environment. But now let's say that you run that and the attacker, do you think the attacker is going to say, you hacked my computer without permission? Our warning banner clearly stated what it was going to do. And we did that. And then some people will say, well, what if an attacker hacks into Bank of America as an intermediary and then they use that to attack your system? <clears throat> Let's think that through as well, because it could be argued that Bank of America could sue you in that situation. I doubt they will, and here's why, because their network's hacked. They don't want to go to court and say, well, our network was hacked, and then our hack system attacked their system, and it took their intellectual property, <laughs> and it executed, and we're wronged here. No, that's not how that's going to go. It's complicated, isn't it? It gets very complicated very quickly, but these are some conversations that we need to start having as well. So any other questions, CJ, or are we still just, I just see you guys just typing like yeah, mad men. Yeah, that's one that I thought was interesting. And I don't know if it's worth talking about at this point because we're not inside a network in our from our attack perspective. But not yet, yeah. Is, is the future of endpoint protection going to be merging next-gen machine learning into traditional signature-based? Yes. In fact, what happened with Silence a long, long, long time ago is they were running a lot of heuristics, artificial intelligence, but they were really lagging in the signature-based detection. And for a while, I believe it was in the news, they were using VirusTotal to assist with that. And I know that Carbon Black can integrate with VirusTotal. So you're going to start seeing more of these hybrid solutions where you have to use blacklisting and whitelisting in conjunction with that machine learning. But if we're looking at the future, and this is just, I'd like to get you guys' opinions on this. 
I actually don't think it's the endpoint. I honestly think that the endpoint, I think we're finally getting to the point where user behavioral analytics is working really well in Active Directory. Endpoints within Active Directory are getting much more difficult to break into with the proper technology stack. But we're seeing more and more companies that don't have Active Directory. Yeah. They don't have a firewall. They're cloud-based. All of their users are out in the cloud. Bring your own device. We're seeing that more and more. I think that that's the future. You know, the browser is now going to be the endpoint moving forward. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's, it's very interesting, especially regarding how many different organizations now work within the cloud and they don't have the typical Active Directory that has been mainstream for forever. You know, just like us, we're not in the same Active Directory environment that we used to be. And for us, we work out of the cloud and you're exactly right. We're doing almost everything out of a browser. So it's definitely interesting. In yep. five years, if our mobile devices aren't near field communication linked to a any monitor I walk up and set the device down next to, I think we've missed like a huge opportunity. That and flying cars. Yeah, absolutely. And one more thing. I, I disagree with you in that I believe, based on a previous test and how well they did on their desktops, that our workstations should be treated as the edge of our network. Yep. Whether we travel, Treat whether we- Treat the internal we, network as hostile. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I just read the Gartner report on, on this, and one of the things they identified was that Endpoint detection response is going to be incorporated into endpoint protection completely. The EDR products will become just sort of a separate thing for MSAs type things, a, sort of a separate breaking off service. But all those things, you rest going. The other thing I like to say: never throw out that old technology, though. Signature based is trivial, right? But but some of that signature base, if it effectively cuts out, if it creates a filter that it cuts down on your stuff. So I don't think some of that. It, old stuff goes away, it becomes an and, not an or. Yep, and I do, sorry, I'm watching Twitter. <laughs> Thank you. So John, I think with, uh, with the browsers, you know, we, have, we see a lot of uh, different plugins for browsers now. We'll say, yep. Thank can, you, everyone, by the can way. Can these extensions read all of your email? And well, those are uh, interesting. Oh, yeah. the, um, the, the one that I always use, and I talk about this almost every webcast and presentation, is Grammarly. Grammarly is a keylogger. It's logging absolutely everything. And does your so organization- So is Adblock Plus. So is Adblock Plus, right? Every single site you ever visit. So I've got this stack of books on how to create Chrome applications and Chrome plugins. Because once I'm done with SANS, like I'm going back into developing and I haven't written any appreciable level of code in over 15 years. So it should be in Perl. Yeah, so it's going to be written in Perl and COBOL, right? <laughs> but I'm going to start like looking at how can we create malicious browser plugins? Because you can trick a user into running HTA, but now user awareness is like, hey, be careful of HTA. But what about plugins and add-ons? In order to access this website, you have to add this. Ad Users add add-ons all the damn time. They don't look at them as malicious. So that's coming. Um, that's going to be a while, folks, but that's where I'm moving to. But I've got this big stack of books that I'm looking at. Anything else, CJ, before we move on to scanning enumeration? Oh, one of them was about, can, should you run mail sniper on your Exchange environment, even if it's O365? Yes, in Absolutely. fact, it, it, yes, it does. Now, two-factor authentication in Office 365 is much better than it is in standard OWA. Um, you can actually set it up so it is, I think it's out of the box that it sets up two-factor for EWS if you enable EWS too, right? I don't know the answer to that. I also, thought it did. on Office 365, look up the attack simulations because they oh, can do- Oh, there's three of them. Yeah. Yep. So they can do what? What are the three? They can do password sprays. I know that. They, they do, do password, password sprays, sprays, create standard phishing campaigns. Yep. There's three of them that come with your Office 365. And there is, I did post the link somewhere up in the chat somewhere earlier, so you'll be able to find it there and maybe Jason can repost it. Uh, 
right. Also, this one's good. How would you detect gal dumping using Mail Sniper? So that right here, this screenshot, this actually came directly from Advanced Threat Protection. So it's now it's now baked in. It's at least Windows and Advanced Threat Protection and Advanced Threat Analytics. Is this so? Someone in Microsoft is saying, "Hey, VHS, we see you." Yeah. And, and well, they actually got it in the name. Like this did. is a huge thing for for Bo. So the attack when they came up and they're like, "Mail Sniper," he's like, "I know that tool." <laughs> so the attack simulation that they go through actually lists the blog post for Mail Sniper on their website. So it's, it's not quite a Wikipedia article on LMR, but it's close. Well done. Well done. <laughs> All right, so let's move back to scanning and enumeration. So once again, in the video that Jason has moved up for us, let me go back here. If we go to that timestamp down below where we, what is it, scanning and enumeration right here, it's gonna jump us to that point. Basically just kind of kicked off some port scans and some brute force of SSH terminals on the inside of the environment. Now, this is, this is dumb. And the reason why, not, not what we did was dumb, but the recommendation I think is dumb. The reason why I think the recommendation for this is dumb is this particular recommendation is not new. The ability to detect internal attacks, whether it's a password spraying attack against SSH, whether it's somebody running a port scan on the inside of your environment, this is not new at all. And this once again ties into the theme of two-factor authentication. So a little bit of background. Last night or yesterday, I was in Minneapolis, St. Paul for Secure 360. And then I was flying home and I didn't get into Rapid City until 2 a.m. I slept a few hours and I knew that I had to write these slides. And this was really eating me. Like, you know, the theme of what this presentation should be is that simply having a security control does not invalidate the need for other controls. And this goes back to Marcus Ranum whenever he first developed the kind of the first heavily used firewall framework. Years ago, when people finally got firewalls in their environments, they took that to mean that they didn't have to reduce ports. They took that to mean that they no longer had to patch their systems. They took that to mean that they no longer had to use strong passwords because we can put everything behind a firewall. And that simple mistake that happened like almost two decades ago, maybe even a little bit longer, I can't remember when Random released his firewall framework, that one mistake in the way that people thought about computer security still has repercussions to this day because everybody gave up on trying to secure the inside of their environment because they had a firewall that was protecting them on the outside. So when we get on the inside of the network, it's basically like a candy shop that's completely wide open and no one's watching the till. You can do whatever you want. You can steal whatever you want if you were so inclined to be such a criminal, but we don't do that, right? But this all is from a mistake of people looking at firewalls and learning the wrong lesson about what a firewall provides to them. Now we tie this back into two-factor as far as the theme. Two-factor authentication. We use two-factor authentication. We can reduce the password complexity. We can reduce our security controls because we have another security control and that's absolute garbage. So the same types of protections that you would put on the outside of your network should also be the same types of controls that you would run on the inside of your network. Just like you said earlier, treat the internal network as hostile because it is. You should have intrusion detection. You should have segmentation between VLANs. You should have host-based firewalls running in your environment. We have not learned this lesson. And for the record, Marcus Ranum almost immediately after he kind of came out with this firewall framework, immediately came out and said, y'all are doing it wrong. This isn't the way that I meant for this to be used. And unfortunately, very few people listened at all. So any questions so far on where we're at? 
Yeah, John, someone said, uh, how do you create a zero trust environment? We're working in a hybrid environment. So if you're working in a hybrid environment, for those of you that don't know what's zero trust, that's kind of where we're moving away from Active Directory or we're moving away from firewalls being down. Really, you're moving into a zero trust model whenever you're setting up every single workstation in your environment with the security controls, both inside of the environment that would match what they would have in a Starbucks coffee, where you completely distrust the network, you completely distrust all of the hosts around that system in that network at all times, including on the inside of the network. So setting up those firewalls for those workstations where they constantly have their defensive cocoon up at all times is essential as part of that zero trust. If you're actually connecting to anything that is a service that's provided, it needs to be under an encrypted tunnel with TLS or possibly a VPN. You trust nothing. But I'm going to rant for a couple of seconds. The zero trust model is also kind of garbage because you're always going to have some level of trust. You're still going to need help desk. You're still need to have desktop support. You're still going to need to have services evaluating systems, but it's going to have to be a lot more restrictive as far as your firewall rule sets, as far as what is allowed into the workstations and how those workstations are accessed. So it's less trust for sure, but you're still going to have some services that are going to be part of that trust relationship every single time. But I like that. I mean, zero trust is a great mnemonic device. People can resonate with it very quickly. Very similar to the cyber kill train, as much as I hate it, the name zings and zero trust zings. And this enabling your host-based firewalls, enabling segmentation in your environment is very similar to that zero trust model as well. So zero, I was listening to Tarala the other day and he was talking about boundaries and, and, and zero trust is part of not just having the one firewall and then the rest. So even in a yep. cloud environment, when you're setting up an infrastructure, he's bringing up the point does, does dev need to talk to the rest of the business or to HR or accounting? Creating yeah, that firewall point, even virtually, who needs to talk to who and going least trust? Get the point to trust if you can. All right. It's funny, we're actually tracking time-wise. I just realized we wow. can track our time. And where <laughs> we're amazing. at. Five minutes late. Yeah, that's, so. That's not bad. There we're doing uh, I was actually well. on a network where you had to authenticate to a system and be, have a domain account to communicate via RDP on their network, to communicate via SSH, to open network protocols required authentication on the so network. So cool, so cool. So this is really, I, 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 I gotta say this, guys. This was my favorite part of the webcast was you know, how do you go from a standard workstation to the point of total domination, right? And this is where they basically started moving into testing for LLMNR. They started, so this is, this is LLMNR here with Responder. And if you don't know what link local multicast name resolution is, you can go to the Wikipedia article, you can check the references, and one of Kent's articles is there. And this allows us uh, many <laughs> times, this is, this is so cool, it's just neat. Uh, <laughs> Epic high five behind my back. Um, Sorry. This is absolutely essential because we see this on admins. So just basically boiling it down, LLMNR and a lot of the insecure services are enabled by administrators, desktop administrators, security administrators, because they're building their own workstations from scratch. You need to establish a template and force that template with secure configurations on every single system in your environment, regardless of the administrative level. Also practice good SMB, disable SMB v1. And I think that we were comfortable saying SMB v2, right? Yeah, we're practically there, right? Yeah, we should be running SMB v3, if at all possible. And then also signing all of those standard things, kill uh, uh, landman authentication, kill NTLM authentication in your environment. NTLM v2 is much better. And we should be using host-based firewalls. Going back to treat the internal network as hostile because it ultimately is 
a hostile network. We have a couple of links. One of them is from Mark Baggett, and the other one is from SecureAuth, the people that created NTLM Relay X, and fantastic articles for them. So any questions before we talk about lateral movement and crack map exec? I think we were going to talk about SMB signing, and we ought to go back to that slide. Yeah, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Go for it. Right, so enabling SMB signing and enforcing message integrity on file exchanges on your network. This is, in theory, going to slow down file transfers across your network. And this is the complaint of admins. We haven't tested any control environment to say with SMB signing enabled and message integrity enforced, file transfers are 20% slower, 30% slower. We would be happy to pen test if you want to leave SMB signing on. Yeah, but our recommendation well. currently is to disable that or enforce message signing across the board. Yep, absolutely. All right, let's talk about gaining access and lateral movements. This is, I don't know if you saw the, there's all this stuff on, on online about like Winnie the Pooh post-apocalypse version. That's absolutely horrific. Where, where um, are you on the internet that you find these things? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I just come across it. So gaining access and lateral movement, and one of our favorite tools, Crack Map Exec, which is just so cool. So here in the previous video, you can go right to 4553, and we have the instructions and a step-by-step -step walkthrough of running Crack Map Exec in a slash 23, where we're providing a user ID of LA-IT admin. We've got a hash of the um, NT hash, run local, and this thing, this is like the first, I remember the first time I saw this. I, this is actually about the time that I was like, we have to hire Marcello. Yeah. Um, oh, no and that doubt. became kind of one of my quests. And this tool allows you to very quickly take your standard access of a user and then cause that access to explode and very quickly move laterally across the entire environment. Just look at this. This is just ridiculous, right? You get one account, you reuse that account on a bunch of systems, and then I think here in a bit, well, yeah, you see uh, password let's, let's kind of take too. one step back, run yeah. through that attack, right? We do LMNR relay via NTLM relay X, dump local hashes or SAM tables, steal local administrator hashes, and then use crack map exec to pivot everywhere we can. Yep. And it just, it, it you know, it goes from just absolutely just getting some level of access. This is where you're dumping the LSA secrets to. Yep where you have some level of access to now you you pretty much own the entire network. And once again, the thematics of this are treat the internal network as hostile. And how should we go about doing that? Well, there are some potential issues with doing this, right? One, you can turn on your firewalls. I think that that's great, but it may not catch everything. There's all these little weird nooks and crannies for getting around in an environment and bypassing a lot of the different defenses. I am a huge fan of Canary tokens. We did a webcast on this a while ago. I'm gonna bring that webcast up here. It's called your Active Directory Active Defense Primer. And we went through step-by-step step how you can create a admin account in an environment or one that's called admin, like admin ADM administrator. And then if anybody tries to authenticate to that account, set the login hours to zero so it can't be logged in, so if somebody were to run a password spraying utility, like domain password spray against that environment, it would generate an alert that your Canary token account has been triggered. So this is another fantastic little trick that you can do and it costs you absolutely nothing in your environment to fire this up. And this does trip us up. Bo was on a test, not last week, but the week before, and they were running Javelin 
And Javelin is a very cool commercial product. I think it was either bought by Symantec or McAfee. I think it was bought by McAfee, if I'm not mistaken. And you can basically create a number of these accounts. Now, both Bo find a, uh, found a bypass technique. If you dump the users and you look at the last log off date, it was set to epoch time for the accounts that Javelin creates. So hopefully they'll fix that at some point. But this is a way that you can do it for free without actually buying an expensive third-party product in order to actually do that. So, so any other questions so far, CJ? Yeah, a couple things about SMB. What might SMB break? And do you know if Microsoft has changed the recommendation against disabling SMB v2? I'm looking up that one right now. Oh, okay, so we're looking that down right now. Any other questions? Oh boy, there was another one. Oh, how, how can you detect if LMNR, you disable it and it gets turned back on? So we were actually talking about this at breakfast. There's a number of products and vendors on the switch where you can actually set up forwarding of protocols. Gigamon has that, CPacket has that. There, there's a number of ways that you can do that. If you're actually doing packet sniffing or BroZeek on the inside of the environment, that can be basically it's broadcast to every single system and every single port on that switch. So you should be able to see that in your environment. You can also query, I should have thought of this, via Active Directory and SCCM whether or not that service is enabled. And if you want full instructions to disable that across your environment, Kent has a blog post on it at Black Hills InfoSec. And you can just enforce that through group policy and, and basically apply it to all workstations and all users in the environment. And the article referenced SMBV1, SMBV2 by Microsoft doesn't really undermine SMBV1 or 2. It, it's disabling features that make it nice on a network, right? Like server reconnects. Yeah. It would gracefully reconnect in SMBV2. That does not exist in SMBV3. So, okay. so it's like you're done, reset. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a little bit more harsh. Yep. Great. So any other questions? Yeah. And I guess I'm not sure. Our slide says SM, disable SMBV1 does not say disable SMBV2. And that's good to know. Thanks for sharing. I didn't that. want to push it that far. Yeah. Um, yeah. Quick question. Can you use NetFlow and Rita to detect what you guys were talking about? You can use NetFlow and you can use IPv6 and uh, look specifically at different protocols, but you're going to get a lot of white noise and false positives. And plus, when you're looking at something like uh, NetBIOS name service and LLMNR, that's very much the local network segment. It's not going to go across routing networks. So if you have a 10-10-10-100 system and then you have a 10-10-20-100 system, you're not going to see that if it's a slash 24 network. Uh, you're not going to see that jump across those network boundaries. But Rita can see if a system is compromised and that data is being exfiltrated. And that brings us to the last one. If we go back to the videos, once again, we go to the videos right here, actually, it's funny, this is tracking us almost exactly time-wise, like what we have and where we're going. This is Kent setting up a phishing campaign against an environment and then running that fish against the environment, getting an internal cobalt strike beacon on the inside of that environment and then just tearing into the environment very, very quickly with all kinds of cobalt strike techniques and moving laterally. With this, this really goes to the far right side of the MITRE attack technique matrix. And this is why we created Rita, to be able to detect these things right here, command and control and data exfiltration. There are very few tools that are very good at detecting command and control and data exfiltration. And this was a huge gap in the industry. And once again, that's why we created Rita because Cobalt Strike with its malleable C2, that's, you can come up with some C2 profiles that are intense to be able to detect. So being able to detect that command and control, to be able to detect that exfiltration, 
is absolutely essential at the perimeter of your environment. And that beacon analysis of what we do, we're bringing back the idea of egress network intrusion detection systems, being able to detect compromised computer systems. Because we fundamentally believe that that entire approach and that technology has been dead for quite some time. And that's why we're bringing it back. Once again, if you want a demo, just type demo. And we'll be happy to explain more about what RITA and uh, active countermeasures is. And RITA is free. Once again, anybody can use RITA. It doesn't cost anything. Also, the endpoint. So the idea of heuristic advanced endpoint being merged with EDR, I, I don't even know why it was split up in the first place. Why in the hell did they split EDR and the actual endpoint? <laughs> I honestly think it was an upsell. Money. I think, yes. Yeah, I think it was an upsell. It's like, here's this extra thing that we can charge you for. Two dollars more per user per month. That adds up, right? So I would agree with what CJ said, and God help me, um, I'm going to agree with Gartner. I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I'm growing in so many ways as a human being. I said on this one, I said, I've come to accept the cyber kill chain as a mnemonic device for describing attacks. I'm selling right out folks, I'm selling out, or I'm just getting tired. Come um, on, that was a military term and it was very useful. So I like yeah. the analogy. Yep, so this is key. So how do you detect when a system is compromised? Making that assumption that your workstations on the inside of your environment will be compromised. And of course, uh, handling that appropriately. So we're going to open it up for some more questions. We've got my email address and we've got the Twitter handles of Kent and Jordan. So let's open it up to questions, folks. Lockheed has the kill chain. Trademarked. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Trademarked. Cyber kill chain. You can still use kill chain. <laughs> yeah, you can use kill chain. Kill chain. We know we can. Yeah, we don't call it the cyber kill chain. No. That, that just makes me die inside. Anything cyber. Yumeng asks about uh, any recommendations on IPS and IDS vendors. I know we always kind of, he's looking at uh, Zscaler. We haven't really had that much interaction. It seems like we run into Palo Altos like all the time, like literally everywhere. And I, I haven't heard any bad things about Zscaler. And it could be that it's on our test. And this is something that concerns me. It could be something that is in our test. We just don't see it, but I can't speak to that, to that specific product. But remember, it honestly doesn't matter. You're, you're never going to be in an environment where you say, oh my God, I'm really glad that we got Zscaler instead of this other vendor. You, you, it's, it's, I always say it's toilet paper. It's a commodity. You need to have IDS, IPS. Find the one that works with your environment, with your incident response team that you like the best, that gives you the best telemetry, ties in with the existing infrastructure in your environment, and then go with that vendor. Don't try to go with the vendor that's the cool vendor that you see in the airports that, you know, they're at all the trade shows. The booths are amazing. No, the go through full proof of concepts, make sure that that product is going to work. And the other thing, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side. Spend some time, or the best quote going to gardening, the grass should be greener where you tend to it, you mow it and you water it. If you have an existing infrastructure stack, like you're using Sophos or you're using Symantec or you're using McAfee, it's really worth saying, okay, we have this one kind of interface that we use for DLP, for advanced endpoint security, it may not be a bad idea to keep building up on an existing infrastructure like Carbon Black or Silence or maybe CrowdStrike and building that up instead of diversifying your portfolio across a lot of vendors. So I know that that's a really horrible answer. Of, it depends on what you like, but that is truly the best answer. Plus one to that. Does Rita hide deduplication of NetFlow traffic? I'm not sure if that's a double negative or not. No, 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 it is. That's not, it's not a problem. Yes. So it doesn't hide it, but we actually, uh, we call it stitching. 
and to be honest with you, I'm barely, barely, barely competent to speak on this at all. But we have to do IP fix stitching and, and NetFlow stitching to try to basically stitch things together and do that type of deduplication analysis. But yes, that's actually what Logan spent all summer on last year, getting that working awesome. for NetFlow wow. 9 and 5 and IP fix. Dennis wants to know about HIDs versus NIDs. Both, actually. I, I really think if you look at any EDR advanced endpoint security product, you have a HIDs at that point, if it, as long as it's not traditional signature based. And then NIDs is important for catching those stupid things on the network, like the LLM and R. You can actually write signatures for that. So it's not that one is better than the other. They're just different perspectives of the same thing. And I have this graph where I show a VIN diagram where you have a workstation in the middle and then these circles overlap it. You would have your HIDs, your NIDs, your net excuse me, NetFlow, your UBEA, all of those things would be watching the endpoint, but they'd be watching the endpoint from a slightly different perspective, not necessarily like it's over uh, overlapping and excessive monitoring. It's just they're looking at it from a different angle. That's why it's important to have multiple angles. It's very easy to bypass a single technology. It is extremely difficult to bypass multiple. So the more overlapping visibility from a HIDs and a NIDs and something like a UBEA, event logging with PowerShell and command line logging, that becomes a very formidable environment to deal with. Mm -hmm. uh, can you reiterate what you're saying about Grammarly logging? That one. So Grammarly, if I'm running Grammarly and I have it installed, but it's not actually working. It's like um, Alexa. I have it disabled. It's kind of like yeah. Alexa for what you're typing. So everything you type into Grammarly, it's sending up to a Grammarly server to check the spelling and the grammar. So that means everything you type is being sent someplace else. So that's great for checking grammar, but functionally that's a key logger. Um, now they're not using it for evil purposes as far as we know, but whatever. Well, they're using it for the same purpose that everyone who runs a plugin or an app does, right? To yep. collect data and make money. Yep, and they're doing a very good job of it. So what I wanna work on come September is I wanna create a plugin that does that, but does that maliciously. If you run it, it's not necessarily checking your grammar, it's just basically dumping it actually give us bad grammar results though so it probably will if i write it it's going to do bad grammar give it good english but it'll spit out bad english for yeah you. i yeah. read i read my tweets like historically and i'm like oh god damn it that's so bad all right we have time for one more question and then we're out of here folks yeah someone's pushing one of your hot buttons tools are great however if you're building a security team what are the top skills you're looking for for the watchers on the wall for the watchers on the wall, well, I'm really happy we're getting some uh, Game of Thrones rep references. Ooh. By the way, I haven't seen anything of season eight yet, but it looks like it's a train wreck. Sure it, sounds like it does. It matter. sounds like it's bad, and I'm going to start watching it next um, week. John hired me because I understood networking very well. I don't know how to code. I don't know how to do much of anything else. Yeah, but I, I've had you guys go through a whole bunch of coding classes and net wars. I know, and it's better now. but Yeah, so I would say, number one, you have to, you have to know networking. Right. It's impossible yeah. to do any of this if you don't understand what a port and a protocol is. Or, or know the USI, uh, OSI stack, at least from like one through four. That is important for a lot of the stuff we do. Yep, yep. And then the other thing I would say is if you're looking at oh, the watcher on the wall base skill set, operating systems. If you get an alert and it says something fishy is happening on a workstation, you've got to be able to jump down to the command line and start looking at the processes and start looking at the processes, the users that are on that workstation, the network connections that are on that workstation, regardless of the operating system. And that might be an entirely different webcast. I was talking with- Building a, a team. Yeah, Malware Jake had this idea, and we might partner up and do a webcast together, that is you're gonna get hacked, be ready for it. So these are the things you should have in place before a hack happens. So. 
smart people. All right, smart people. All right, that's it, folks. Um, that, camera one, camera two, camera three. Camera three. With that, we're out of here. I think we got another one in the can. Thank you so much, and be on the lookout for our next webcast. For all the people still listening, if you have ideas for a future webcast, please drop in the questions window so that way we can mine all that for gold for the future. Later, everybody. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, to leave us a positive review on your streaming service.